0: From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. The name Michael Fanuel is frequently accompanied by adjectives like guru, whiz, leading marketing strategist. He's the former chief creative officer for General Mills. And before that, he was chief strategy officer for Fallon. A lot of chiefs. He is currently the founder and CEO of Talk Like Music, a consultancy that helps people, places and brands become more inspiring. He's also the author of a new book called Stop Making Sense. The Art of Inspiring Anybody, and I have no doubt that whatever you do, you're going to be inspired by Michael. Thank you for being here.
1: Oh, Ali, it's so nice to be here, and thank you for those very sweet words.
0: Well, absolutely. Congratulations on the book. What an accomplishment. Is this your first book? Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Did you enjoy the writing process? Did you know you had a book in you? You know, I am...
1: even on the hard days when it felt impossible and like I was wasting every fiber of my being, I enjoyed it. I just felt so lucky to have the opportunity to contend with thoughts and feelings inside of my head and try to express them. But, but, but what I realized is that I, I, I think any of us could write a really great 30-page book. <laughs> sure, 30 or, pages. Page 31 okay. is where, where it gets hard. Mm-hmm. And and at least at least with me writing a nonfiction book, I couldn't get past page 30 without the help of other people. So I met neuroscientists, and I met musicians, and I met chefs, and I met all of these amazing people. So, so for me, the process of writing the book was a process of expanding my thinking on the wings of other wonderful people. So sure. I, yeah, I loved
0: it. Well, I wanted to talk more about the book. But before we do that, I want people to understand a little bit about you and your career. Um, I've had the opportunity to hear you speak a couple of times. I've got to have coffee with you. Anybody who can hear you speak should. And no matter what you do and in your writing, too, you're always talking about music. It's hmm. the name of your company. You quote musicians. You talk about you 2 and David Bowie. What is it about music? Were you a musician? Like, why does music fuel you?
1: Oh, I am terrible at music. Okay. I, I, I just had my college reunion and we planned a karaoke night and I had stomach aches for weeks. What? I know you were thinking about the song.
0: What did you go with? Uh,
1: I ended up doing Blister in the Sun by oh. Violent Femmes because you don't really need to, to, to sing to, to, to pull it right. off. The Good other thing, thing I realized, though, is never get worried about karaoke because by the time you stand up to do it, everybody is... is, is, is Joyful, <laughs> okay, and That's forgiving, a good way to put it. Yes. and forgiving. <laughs> uh, but no, no, I, I just, I've always, I felt music.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I've loved it. It's always moved me, and I, I, I think it has something to do with my upbringing. My, uh, my family were immigrants from Italy. And we grew up on Long Island, and it was a loud, boisterous family just full of zest and passion. And emotions would sort of spill like, 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 like meatballs on Sunday <laughs> dinner tables. And so I grew up in, 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 in this world where all around me was a sort of free-flowing passion and 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 that's what i felt in music Mm -hmm. i mean i i remember growing up and listening to madonna and prince and the beastie boys but when i went to high school uh i met a few guys who introduced me to british alternative rock like the smiths and Mm. the cure and for the first time i felt like people were talking to my tortured adolescent soul and it, it just so so powerful i mean i mean i i I start my book with this story about David Bowie, and uh, he 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 was in West Berlin in the late seventies to record a new album, and uh, it was going to be a very very experimental album, and and there was one number on it that was an instrumental, with whirring synthesizers and clanking ashtrays. It was really strange, but as he was. Uh, Mixing this song one night, they were in a studio, a rundown old Nazi ballroom actually, just about half a mile from the Berlin Wall, and he looked outside and at the wall he saw a man and a woman getting hot and heavy making out, Mm -hmm. right under soldiers patrolling with, with rifles. And he was so moved by that image that in about 20 minutes he wrote all of the lyrics to heroes we could be heroes oh, just wow. for and that instrumental number be, be, be became heroes and he went back to Berlin uh, in in 1987 to perform it at the wall amazing and on the other side of the wall he, he, he couldn't see them but but he was told there were Thousands of East Berliners who gathered on the other side of the wall to, to hear him sing this song. And, and and Bowie says that when when he performed that, it felt like prayer. Hmm. It felt spiritual. And and I discovered this story because when, when David Bowie died, the German foreign office tweeted. There were all these amazing tweets. Oh, David Bowie, you're great. You're a hero. You're wonderful. The German foreign office tweeted, David Bowie, thank you for bringing down that wall. Wow. Thought, what? What? <laughs> what? But, but. But I'm sure he did. I'm sure months later when that wall fell, there were East Berliners chipping and chiseling away who were there that night, who heard David Bowie sing, who felt like they could be heroes just for one day. Chills. And it, it, it's And that, it's that power of music. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, Plato... Uh, Plato loved music. He thought it was very powerful. It could teach children order and harmony. It could rouse the battle spirit in armies. But he thought the government should regulate music like a drug because it was so powerful. He thought that that when music goes wrong, crazy things happen, revolutions. And he's right, isn't Uh he? I mean, the the Civil War and Negro spirituals, the civil rights movement here in America, even disco. In the 1970s at the Limelight, disco was LGBTQ protest music.
0: Hmm.
1: Uh, Plato was right. I think your second book is all about music, (laughs) (laughs) but this book's actually (laughs) not about music. Right? No, I know, but before
0: we before we talk about the book, and I want to talk about how you became the guru, the whiz, the chief creative officer. Most people don't grow up saying I want to be in marketing. When did you sort of start realizing that's what you wanted to do? What did you go to school thinking you wanted
1: to do? Well, I've got my. Degree in Victorian Studies. Of course. Because why not? Why not? Uh, I went to Vassar College and they had all these amazing interdisciplinary programs, Classical Studies, Renaissance, and the Victorian Studies professors were the, the professors who turned me on the most. And hmm. I just wanted to study with them. I didn't care what they were teaching and I loved it and I loved all of it. But I, um, after college, pursued what had been my passion since I was a little kid, which was politics. I never liked sports. I would watch This Week with David Brinkley and, and meet the press. And I worked on a few campaigns and we won and we got down to Washington, D.C. and I was working on Capitol Hill and it was a dream come true until it got really ugly really quickly. It it, it was the, the government shutdown, the Monica Lewinsky scandal, and it was so clear to me that the way political communications works worked. I wish I could say worked, but I think it still does. It's Mm -hmm. is by exploiting the fear and the anxiety of innocent people. So, so we would get all these phone calls in our congressional office, I'm terrified my Medicare is going to be cut, I'm terrified my taxes are going to be raised, I'm terrified my kid will get thrown out of school. And I just thought, geez, there's got to be a better way of doing the communications in a field that's supposed to be so noble and so full of integrity. So I hightailed it to to New York City, where I thought I could learn how to be more noble on Madison Avenue. <laughs> just saying it sounds ridiculous yeah uh but i did i got to work at some amazing ad agencies and i learned that that communications be it a 30 second ad or a poster you're passing on a street or a video that you now find on 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 pre-roll that 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 really good communications can forge a very human bond with people Hmm. and if it all happens right it's a on that, that that benefits the company behind it, that greases the wheels of capitalism, but but hopefully also leaves everybody, every party to that communications feeling uh, a little bit bigger and brighter about themselves.
0: Sure. So did – but that same passion and purpose that fueled your decision to go into politics, did you find fulfillment doing advertising and working on brands and businesses and products?
1: That's a hard question, Allie. <laughs> Sorry. I think there were definitely moments when I felt enriched emotionally, spiritually, cosmically by doing the work of marketing. You know, helping a big company like like Unilever or, or later on General Mills kind of refine its, its purpose and set on a course to doing something better with all the muscle they bring to the world is enriching. But I think if I'm really honest, most of the satisfaction in my career in advertising and marketing came from the amazing people. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I don't want to stereotype, but the people who tend to work at ad agencies tend to be the the, the sort of class clowns, the funny people, the revels, the people not sitting at the popular kids' table at the high school cafeteria. And they're amazing when they grow up and they learn that they've got powers and prowess that maybe wasn't always valued. So, uh, I, don't, I just, I, you met, liked that I met the most amazing people.
0: Yeah. And Fallon is what brought you to Minneapolis. Yes. And that was a dream job? That was a place you wanted to work?
1: Um... Well, yeah, I'll tell you the story. It's um it's, a, it's 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 an important one for me. I um I'd always admired Fallon. Mm-hmm. Of all the creative agencies, they had always seemed the smartest and the most strategic, and as a brand strategist, that was deeply uh, meaningful to me. So I always admire them and I admired Pat very very deeply. So I I met I met Pat and we uh, we had lunch and we hit it off and he said, "Get you and the family out to Minneapolis." And uh we came out here and uh it was great, but it just didn't it just didn't feel right. It didn't feel like we were done with New York. We just had our third kid in New York, uh, we were enjoying it, we were building a life there. Uh and and then a few months later my um my brother was hit by a car and killed. It was a mm. awful hit and run accident. Oh. And I was uh I was shocked. I was sad, as, as you'd imagine. And, and Joanna, my wife, and I sat down, and we looked at each other and sort of said, "Geez, who the who the hell knows what's going to happen tomorrow? Let's let's err in favor of adventure." Hmm. Uh, and I, uh, I was ready to call Fallon back and say, Hey guys, can I still come? But I I didn't have to, they'd sent flowers, they'd sent a note, they'd reached out with such, um, with, with such trademark hallmark, compassion and kindness, uh months later in the middle of a bleak January, we were moving to Minneapolis. In
0: January. Oh no yeah.
1: <laughs> oh yeah.
0: So what what was it like when you I mean, having admired Fallon from the outside and, and knowing their reputation, what was it like when you finally got there? Were there certain things you worked on that you're most proud of?
1: Yeah, well Fallon. Oh had been one of the greatest ad agencies the industry had ever known. But by the time I got there, um, they had uh, – the, 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 a lot of people thought their golden age was behind them. They'd lost some big counts and they were uh, they were still successful, but they, they weren't the, the, the glorious, shiny ad agency they once had been. So a lot of our job was to roll up our sleeves and work on the hard business of growing, regrowing the agency. And it was remarkable to me that so many of the veterans of that place, like Pat himself, like Mike Buckner, who was the CEO, who'd been working for decades, hadn't seemed drained of a single iota of energy and ambition for that place. Hmm. I was just awed. I was floored by the ability of people who were doing something for so long to keep doing it so well. Right in hmm. a day and age when I find myself getting bored and distracted and sort of an intellectual A D D the staying power. Yeah of 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 people like that was extraordinary.
0: Is there a takeaway from that, or is that just sort of a, a, a well, thing? I think of there yesterday. is. I mean, a,
1: eventually the agency got a, a comeback agency of the year at age. The big the big trade publication given And I, I I I guess the the moral is it it, it works mm-hmm. if you keep kicking ass. Asses will get kicked. Right.
0: <laughs> that feels good. Yeah, I think so. So so then you moved to General Mills, which I think, I if, from what I've read and understood, surprised you as much as anyone else. You didn't really oh, yeah. see yourself as a, as a company guy. And I have read, and tell me if the legend is true, that you actually said to the CEO of General Mills, I don't like any of your advertising. I don't even think you just have an ad problem. You have a food problem. This is what you said, and then you got hired.
1: I did. I did. which is a real testament to Ken Powell, who already knew that. He Mm -hmm. didn't need me to tell him that. He knew that the the taste, the literal taste of what America, what the world wanted to put in their body had shifted so dramatically and they needed to catch up. So he committed the company to being a massive player in the natural and organic space, to taking sugar out of yogurt, to taking artificial ingredients out of cereal so people could love the thing that they used to love. And it, it was really that vision to fix the screwy relationship the world has got with its food that inspired me to go to General Mills. And when I was there, oh, geez, the, the, the people were fantastic. And, you know, it was only uh, almost three years, but, but we did a lot. We, we rewrote the corporate purpose. We remembered we were a food company, not a brand company or a marketing company. We got some giant brands growing on the back of doing work that was more authentic and honest about, about, about what there were brands like Cheerios. People forget, you know, cereal is, cereal is produce. It's uh, mm-hmm. it's grown on farms in sunshine. Uh, Jeff Kling, who's the creative director of Fallon, said, nobody gets mad at kale when you cook it. Why do we get <laughs> mad at oats when we cook it? Which is brilliant. <laughs> but just, just just a reminder that, uh, that it was food that company was selling. And y- you have to market food the way you would serve food if, people were sitting at a table in your home. You've got to do it with with, with warmth and authenticity. Mm -hmm. As soon as food marketing gets slick, ugh, who wants to put that in their mouth?
0: Mm -hmm. So is there a particular campaign or or slogan or anything that that you can point to, something that stands out from your time at General Mills that you're particularly proud
1: of? Or just a strategy? Yeah, I, I mean... It was very interesting with Cheerios. Mm -hmm. It's a massive, iconic, well loved brand. And the company had invested a lot of money in making Cheerios gluten-free. O- oats are naturally gluten-free, but there's so much cross-contamination in the production process. This uh, amazing engineer, General Mills, invented a machine to separate the wheat from the oats, and, and, and that was wonderful. So finally, Cheerios could be as the world, as God, as the higher power intended. It could be gluten-free, which is great news. Uh and they did an entire campaign right before I got there about this sweet man who invented this technology, uh, and 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 how wonderful that was. But it didn't quite get the results that the the that they were expecting, that 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 the business, frankly, needed. I came in and. Somebody on the team said something that really stuck with me. They said, what if we stopped telling the story about us and we started telling the story about them? Them being very specifically the people who could now eat Cheerios who never could before. Mm -hmm. So we did a campaign about a little girl named Violet who had celiac. And her brothers and sisters growing up could have Cheerios every morning, but she couldn't until now. Ah. And this was Violet's first bowl of Cheerios. And uh, I still think about it now, and it just sort of warms my heart. But that simple shift from, let's tell you about us, to let's give you a gift. Right. Let's give you a gift.
0: And it gets that emotion and heart and feeling. And that, of course, is your whole approach to advertising advertising and marketing and, and business in general. Um, so talk a little bit about when you had because I feel like when I've heard you talk about inspiration and that's what your book is about. When did you have the aha or, or did you or is it just sort of like, yeah, I've been doing this for years. Now I'm going to explain this to you.
1: Yeah. I've, you know, I've always been sort of emotionally susceptible.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: I still cry at John Hughes movies.
0: <laughs> You're so good. Um, How could you not? They're so good.
1: Um, but I, you know, I, I trace it, and it's become it's become a reality in my mind now. I, it, it, the story's neater probably than the actuality is. But I was invited to go see U2, uh, a band that I despised. I thought... Bono was a pontificating, gas bag, loud mouth. But it was my best friend's bachelor party, and I I had to go. I was his best man.
0: And was this, you were working in New York at the I time? I was working
1: in New York. Okay. And we, were, we went to the Meadowlands, and I was grumpy, and my arms were crossed, and I was <laughs> determined to sit and just take Hate it, and do it. Mm-hmm. But halfway through the show, Allie, I was transported. And, and anyone who's seen you 2 knows that feeling. This is rock and roll church and I I find myself standing and my hands are in the air and I want to sign up for Amnesty International and go to Africa and I want to hug everybody around me. And I thought, what is happening? Not then, the day after, I thought, "What, what happened? And I became very interested in the topic of inspiration and I was shocked to find there was so little written about it. Scientists had studied persuasion and leadership and management, but inspiration had always been seen as this kind of artsy-fartsy lightning bolt from the gods that sometimes happens and sometimes doesn't until the last two or three years where some scientists have really begun to try to figure out what happens to our brain when it is turned on, when it is stoked. And, and what they've discovered, it's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty simple process. There are these neurons in our brain called mirror neurons, and those are the neurons that help us learn by replicating, by mirroring what we see. So a little baby sees her mother's mouth move, mirror neurons fire, her mouth starts to move, she learns to speak. But but what these scientists discovered is that mirror neurons also mirror feelings and emotions. So when you see somebody sad, when you see Jennifer Lawrence crying, you feel sad. Mm-hmm. When you see a politician indignant and outraged, you feel a sense of indignation and outrage. When when you see Steph Curry intense and locked in, you are on the edge of your seat intense and locked in. And 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 that really is the neurological mechanism for how inspiration works. If you want to inspire somebody, express your emotions fiercely and passionately enough that they activate the other person's mirror neurons and they feel those feelings
0: hmm so how did that how did you take that inspiration about inspiration and start applying that
1: to your work well there's a kicker to the story <laughs> 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 if inspiration were as simple as being be emotional, be passionate. Everybody would be amused, and we'd all be walking around, unable to accomplish our to-do list, because <laughs> we'd be walking on on sunshine. What scientists have also discovered is a thing that impedes that transfer of emotion, that impedes that transfer of of of, of feeling, and it's thinking. Mm. As soon as your prefrontal cortex, the thinky, thinky bit of your brain starts getting analytical, your capacity to feel stops. Hmm. So so for me, the the inspiration equation is, is pretty simple. It is passion minus reason. Equals inspiration. Passion minus reason is inspiration. Seems a little you've, dangerous. It is dangerous. Um, you've got to be passionate, uh, but you've got to find a way of making things odd enough, strange enough, music-like enough that people get toe-tapping, their spirits sore, their body moves, and ultimately they act. They do what, what, what you believe they ought to do.
0: So can you give an example like give it, I think ads are an easy way I mean talk about a campaign whether it's one of yours that you did or, or one that inspires you.
1: Yeah sure. So I was lucky to work at the ad agency that did Dozeki's most interesting man in the world, which is one of the greatest campaigns I'd say in the history of advertising. And I just sort of came in and I was there, but, but the, the day-to-day team was brilliant and, and they did the work behind it. But, but it, it's a great story about, um, about delusion, about being unreasonable. Because the client had a very specific brief. The client wanted Dozeki's to be the second best premium imported Mexican beer in America.
0: That, they literally said they yeah. want to be the second yeah, yeah, best. Yeah, yeah.
1: Corona was the first, <laughs> and they were going to be the second best premium imported Mexican beer in America. Because they knew they and, couldn't touch it. And Corona. they did all their market research, and Corona was going to be about daytime and sunshine, and Dozeki's was going to be about nighttime and adventure. Okay, And it makes perfect marketing sense. Mm-hmm. It is strategic strategically coherent. But 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 of course the strategists on our team said, wait a second, you don't get to choose your competition. Somebody walks into a bar on a Friday night and they have hundreds of interesting options. They don't say can I have a Corona or the second best premium <laughs> me imported Mexican best. beer. Right. They walk in and there's Jameson and there's wine and there's Jägermeister and there's craft beers and there's Miller Lite and, and it, it's it's not good enough to be number two. You've got to be the most interesting thing in a bar and that, that thought, the most interesting thing in a bar, and that doesn't mean the most interesting beer or Mexican beer, or drink, or cocktail, it means the most interesting thing in a bar, more interesting than the people, more interesting than the music, more interesting than the surroundings. That preposterous ambition codified in that brief fueled that famous campaign. That, that's how you get to the most interesting man in America, not just some interesting dude and some interesting beer ad.
0: And did they love it? Did the Equis people love uh, it right it, away? It, it took
1: the agency a long time to to sell that, uh-huh. that that campaign. No, they didn't. They didn't love it right away. Um but 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 they do now. <laughs>
0: yeah. It worked.
1: They do, and the team behind it, I mean, they were Jeff Kling was the creative director, and they they were they were brilliant,
0: yeah, yeah, so is it possible to apply that kind of thinking to other sorts of
1: businesses, absolutely. It, it um, makes
0: sense in advertising it, and marketing,
1: but well, here's here's the thing, though. Um, whether we're talking about advertising, marketing, parenting, coaching, politics, business to business sales, the human brain is the same. It, it it doesn't change from situation to situation. It is still turned on by the expression of feeling, and inhibited by overthinking and analysis. So one of my favorite I- examples from politics at least, is is uh, in, in in 2000, Al Gore said he wanted to reduce carbon emissions 20 percent. That was a pretty ambitious aim. But he lost. <laughs> Eight years later, Barack Obama comes along and says he wants to lower the tides of the oceans. Mm. He won. And, and did mm. he win because of that? Well, yes, partially. Uh, Obama won because he had a way of of, of articulating our ambitions in grand, epic, delusional ways. Hmm. He wanted it to be the most interesting thing. He wanted to lower the tides of the oceans. And it's always that way. You, you know, politicians who express the grandest ambitions as opposed to the tiniest baby step objectives, ugh, or even the word objective stinks, <laughs> um, the grandest ambitions win.
0: Hmm so okay great everybody's fired up we're all feeling emotional and then you start thinking again right we all get in our own heads and you work at a law firm you work at an accounting office you work at a magazine and you have deadlines and rules and the way things need to be done how do you start getting out of your own way
1: right Uh, first of all I am not a fan of idiocy. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I think logic and reason and precision and facts and data and truth are deeply valuable and important in helping you figure out your strategy. When i say you've got to turn off that prefrontal cortex and you got to stop making sense and you got to start turning on the feelings i'm talking about activating all of that and executing all of that you just you can't get people moving you can't get people roused with bullet points hmm. So so by all means, use all of your logic, all of the rigor of your steely brain to figure out the right thing to do. But then you stop making sense. And I, I, I think that the most important thing is to get fluent in the language of feelings and expressing your feelings because – even though we think we're a really emotionally liberated culture, all around us are situations where we're told not to be emotional. Let's think about this clearly. Let's be reasonable. Put our personal biases aside. And, and in those moments in, 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 in meetings, for example, where people do get a little passionate, there's always a sense of, well, just calm down. You, you know, Ali, I think the two ugliest words in the corporate lexicon are chill out. Hmm. So friggin' demeaning. Why would he tell people who are obviously roused, rallied, passionate, angry, whatever the feeling, ab- about something to to chill out and take a deep breath? That's when you say go. Hmm. So, 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 my advice is that we all need to learn how to express our feelings. In places where feelings might not always be welcome. And there is one simple exercise that I talk about in my book. Uh, Every day, find one opportunity to begin a sentence with the words, I feel. Right. And it sounds so, but try it, try it, especially in a meeting Mm -hmm. or try it with your children or try it, try it anywhere, anywhere where it feels like it's a, it's a little stiff. I feel happy. I feel joyful. I feel nervous. I feel sad. And something amazing starts happening as soon as you begin expressing yourself, um, as authentic. Authentically, as that you, you're not burdening yourself to prove anything or to logic anything or to argue. You're just saying, "Here are my feelings." You're just sharing. People, people, people are disarmed. They're intrigued. They tend to lean forward. They want. to like, I felt pre- that way too. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yes. And that opens up <laughs> new sorts of dialogue. Geez, I hope so. Yeah.
1: I hope so. I mean, I've I've been trying it with my kids a lot because. The default way of talking to my kids is, you should, you must. Because I said so. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is great. (laughs) We should keep doing. But every now and then throwing in a, I feel worried about you not doing your homework. Or I feel excited by what you did on the soccer field today. I feel, I feel, I feel and
0: what do you how do you see them responding what 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 ages are your kids?
1: They are um fourteen, eleven, and nine and uh it's interesting, like like most kids, um you know, they're a spectrum from being very um gooey and emotional to very sort of uh tweeny and mm-hmm. slightly distant mm-hmm. and uh I, I I don't know I just you know the 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 world including our children respond to us the way we come to them and I, I just i try in the daily grind of trying to with with my wife run a household in a somewhat orderly way of making room for some messy emotions
0: mhm yeah
1: and i and i hope if not now eventually someday down the road we would have raised three Boys who are maybe more emotionally fluent than uh, than they otherwise would have been, and geez, if boys grow up to be men who are more emotionally fluent, I think— I think that's good for all of us.
0: Are they? Do they think you're like, oh, Dad, you're so emotional. You're always talking about feelings. Are they interested in your work? Do ah, you think they'll read your book?
1: I, I don't know. I, I hope so. I think they're confused why I've been around the house so much the last <laughs> year or so. <laughs> do you work, <laughs> When Dad? is Dad going back to are the office? Are you going have a job?
2: <laughs> they I feel yeah. I feel
1: concerned, Dad. Why are you Dad? home? <laughs> That's amazing. Do you want Uh, to
0: go back to an office
1: now that you've been out? People don't believe this, but it is so true. Allie, I miss meetings. What? I do. I miss that amazing thing that happens when people gather in a conference room. They talk about their weekends and what shows they saw. And I, I miss those moments where people are being so authentically human and then boom the meeting begins and the PowerPoint gets projected and we start dissecting the bullet and all of that humanity sort of is sucked up in a vacuum cleaner of, 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 of Microsoft Office. And uh, I, I want to, I, I think, yeah, yeah, I, I think at some point I want to go go back to a special place where I could work with amazing people.
0: Are you surprised that you missed that?
1: Totally. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> Because
0: um, I think most people, when they're in that setting and they're going to those meetings, they're fantasizing the about you walking around a campus, writing your book, Absol- and setting your own schedule.
1: Absolutely. You, you know, oh, this is going to sound so stupid. I mean, I, I miss the privilege of getting to know people in a place, in a time, in moments when they are working. Mm-hmm. Right? We're, we're extraordinary creatures when we're leaning forward, when we're digging in, when we're working. Uh, and and I, I love meeting parents at the side of the soccer field. And I love interviewing neuroscientists at UCLA for, for, for a piece that I'm writing. But But getting to be in an environment where you see people crushing it and burning it, I mean, geez, that's an honor.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I kind of think you might be able to get
1: a job if I you don't, want one. I
0: don't know. I don't <laughs> just, know. I'm just going to kind of put know. that out there. If anyone's listening. Okay. <laughs> no. yeah. Michael wants a job! Uh, right after the book tour. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk in the book about three kinds of inspiration. Mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting. Can you give a little a little taste of, of why and how sure, that...
1: Sure, sure. I mean... The word inspiration, as soon as I started writing this, I realized, oh, man, I am in a rabbit hole of confusion here because everything is inspiring. I'm inspired by this person and that person and this thing and that thing. And I find inspiration here in that refrigerator magnet. I saw it in my friend's house. that told me to dance like nobody's looking. Oh, I find that so inspiring. Let's make it into a throw pillow. Um, but I, I – I think when when, when I did surveys for the book and I asked people, what do you find inspiring? So much of it was the life examples of people who were deeply virtuous. And it could be Michelle Obama or it could be Nelson Mandela or it could be my mother's friend who was battling cancer or this teacher that I had in grade school. These people who live their lives with such virtue and integrity that you sort of sit back and you are awed. And I can't write a book teaching people how to be good people. Right. I just trust that that they are. For mm-hmm. for me, what I talk about is inspiration by invitation, inviting people uh, to do something and the need to inspire them. That could be a coach stoking a team at halftime. It could be a teacher setting kids on the course for a uh, for life that maybe they haven't even imagined. It could be business managers. It could be entrepreneurs. But, but those moments where you have a – an audience of sorts, an audience of one, an audience of millions, but you have an audience and you need to make them move. And again, you could be Patton talking to the army the day before D-Day, or you could be mom talking to Joey in the car before a hockey game. Hmm.
0: Well, the book is...
1: Inspiring oh, It is. Thank you, Allie. And I
0: think, I, I hope that people know, I mean, it's not just for advertisers or marketing people. I think they already know how inspiring and amazing you are. This is really a book for anybody who wants to do anything a little better and with a little more heart. Mm-hmm. So good luck out there on thank the book you, tour. I hope it's a huge hit. Oh. And I uh, can't wait to see what you do well, next. Well, thank
1: you so much. And likewise. And will <laughs> yeah. you
0: be wearing your leather pants? Is really I don't actually have leather
1: question. pants. But
0: you have the imaginary have leather, leather pants. pants. It's the thing I, do, I learned I from you the first time I heard well, that, that, you speak. That story,
1: that's great. It's another Bono story. He was asked, um, Bono, how do you do it? How do you turn on billions of people around the world and raise millions of dollars? And he said, I don't. I put on the leather pants and I let the leather pants tell me what to do. I love that, and man. I love that sense of swagger. And I just think if we all uh, imagined ourselves wearing those leather pants, yes. wouldn't it be awesome?
0: Exactly. Leather pants. Yeah. Thank you Michael for being Thank you, here today. Allie. This is awesome. After this, we're going back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. Don't go away. Well, Michael is so passionate. He makes it sound easy. But how do you take that inspiration and really make it work for your business? Let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. John McVeigh teaches entrepreneurial strategy at the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship. Thanks for being here, John. Thank you. So what, what did you find yourself thinking as somebody who teaches entrepreneurial strategy? Is it all about inspiration? And, and it sound, it's easy to say, but how do you get there?
2: Well, what I love about Michael's approach is uh, his, his emphasis that there are sort of three aspects that we need to be uh, careful we, we cover in, in, in business education. Thinking, feeling, and doing. And, and I think he's correct that we probably overemphasize thinking, certainly in, in, for the needs of the entrepreneurial field. And we really underemphasize, um, you know, the importance of, of feeling. At the Schulz School, we, we say that our students are, their focus is solving problems that matter to you, Mm. and create value for others. So it really is about understanding themselves and understanding other people. It's all about improvisation. And so, uh, you know, in his terms, maybe the students at the Schultz School are the students swaggering around in leather pants <laughs> uh, compared to the other students at St. Thomas.
0: Hand those out with a textbook. Uh, huh?
2: Indeed. Uh, so, so, so one of the skills we teach is, is surprisingly empathy. Um, it's hard to inspire without truly understanding the person you're trying to serve. And so uh, there's a lovely quote from Helen Keller says, uh, you know, the best and most beautiful things in the world can't be seen or touched. They must be felt with the heart. Hmm. Uh, and that's really these, the, the, the skills of empathetic interviewing are difficult. Um, it's not going out with a clipboard and asking a series of, of, of questions determined beforehand. It's uh, learning the skills of going out, making eye contact with people, really understanding them, asking them open-ended questions and exploring what matters to them and finding out how they feel about things and looking for those emotional touch points. Because when we're doing this sort of entrepreneurial research, we're trying to find surprises. And what we often say to our students is if you go out and you do all this research and all you find is confirmatory data of what you already believed, then you've completely wasted your time. Because we're in the business of finding surprises, surprising emotional needs of people who uh, inspire us um, as entrepreneurs. So a great example of this would be Yvonne Schwinnar at Patagonia. You know, oh, he, yeah. he, he, he describes his ideal customer, not his average customer, but his ideal customer are dirt bags the sort of people <laughs> that, you know, they spend a year, uh, you know, living on the Arctic Plateau or climbing in the Andes mm-hmm. and, you know, using the products in extreme fashions that no one else would use. But those are the people whose emotions he needs to understand, their inspiration of why they climb, how they climb, what they feel like when they get up in the morning, what their needs are. And if he can satisfy those, he knows that 90% of the people who buy his Product, they're never going to get outside a state park, but,
1: but they aspire
2: to absolutely the right. inspiration that they ha- that, that 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 the ideal customer provides um, uh, brings along all this other business. So that's why things like empathy emotion feelings and teaching our students and what our students are really good at the Schultz school is learning these and, and going out into the marketplace with these skills of not that we can just collect and manipulate data but that we can actually understand people deeply and generate original data and original insight around their feelings and their their needs and inspiration so, so it's,
0: interesting and, and so much more to it than just coming up with a product
2: ab- absolutely and yeah. it's exciting if yeah. you like people as most entrepreneurs do, um, you know, this is exciting work. It's not, If you enjoy getting to know unusual, quirky people who are at the extremes of, of our society in all sorts <laughs> of ways, uh, you will love this research because that's where you find the nuggets right. uh, that are going to bring the next great idea.
0: Yeah, find some dirt bags. Okay, <laughs> okay. thanks, John. In, le- in leather pants. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> bring it all together. Thank you so much, John. And thank you to our sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you haven't already, please subscribe to By All Means, Wherever you listen to podcasts, you can learn more about the show at tcbmag.com/byallmeans. I'm Alison Kaplan, and on behalf of Twin Cities Business, thanks for listening to By All Means. Teamwork to make By All Means, and we've got some all-stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti, Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas, Senior Media Relations Manager, Vanita Sakar and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for all their help. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Hope you enjoyed By All Means.